Please remain standing. Our text this morning is Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18. But I want to go back to 12 and 13. We'll start with those. So it'll be Philippians 2, 12 through 18, just so we can make sure our text this morning is in, is in the proper context. So uh, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18, and here's what God's Word says. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Please be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who helps us as we read and interact together. We pray that you would do your divine work in us as we think about your truth, your scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're hearing words these days that I don't believe I've heard since the late 70s and early 80s. I was a college student back then, and, you know, I had a home, and my parents were still paying the bills, and I was headed off to college, and I don't really remember or think about how things were. I wasn't a young father or mother trying to make ends meet and take care of kids in an age of spiraling inflation and out-of-controlness. I wasn't there. I was, I was protected. But I remember words... Uh, and I still have to look them up because if you're not, you know, some people just grasp all these, but, you know, recession, what's the technical, what is a recession? Depression, that was just something grandma told us about from the 30s when she had to, to take bread and, and, and spread uh, grease on it and put a little bit of sugar on it to get it down and that's all they had to eat, you know. And, and as a little kid, you hear those stories and they're trying to tell you and you don't really believe them. You think that's like walking, you know, uphill through snow five miles to school both ways or something like that. Um, depression, recession, stagflation, we're hearing words like that. Um, uh, things like that, that that all of a sudden, I, I need a little primer myself. Uh, I understand, you know, the worst of whatever in 40 years and the worst grocery prices. I know when I go to the store, oh, <laughs> I came home one day. We love watermelon at our house, and I can't wait till watermelon season. And you see the big bins of watermelon. Man, it's time to go start thumping on those things and look at them and, and know the, the way to pick out the perfect watermelon. And then I see the bin, and it's like $7.99. I said, Paul, I'm not going to spend 8 bucks for a watermelon. That's outrageous. 
And I came home without it. I said, let's just imagine eating watermelon. But then I had my little coupon that you have to digitally download. And I got one for $4 the last holiday we had. And I'm like, that's great. And we enjoyed our watermelon. Romeo even eats the rinds all down to just a thin green skin. If Romeo want to make that dog happy, be slicing the watermelon to cut it into the bowls and then sit him in the garage with a bunch of watermelon rinds. He will go to town on those things. Um, but then I went back to ShopRite and those watermelons were $12. And I said, $12, there's no way. And then I came home last week, I said, bargain at Costco. This watermelon only cost $8. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and we're just making these adjustments and trying to figure out what to spend, what to eat, what not to eat. And you read the surveys and everybody is, 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 is adjusting in some ways. Um, uh, we have become you know, practical vegetarians at our house during the week and Sunday's meat day. Um, wheat prices are going up and, and every day they're going up, we're all going to be um, on the keto diet, <laughs> like it or not, uh, as those things happen. And we make our adjustments and we've got a world just saying, this is crazy. Not even going to talk about crime, but rural crime, rural violent crime is not far behind violent crime in the big cities. If you look at the statistics, and there's all these things happening, uh, they're, they're pushed to the limit. I heard of a police department that said, we're not going to respond to 911 calls until we've had a series of, of ways uh, to make sure it's, a, it's legitimate because our gas budget is gone, and we don't reset our budget for three months. So some township in, in Michigan says, essentially, you're on your own unless you can convince it's, it's really bad. <laughs> Driving by, I was talking to the men on Wednesday. I said, I'm behind these school buses, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, they got to pay the same gas that I do. What, what do I mean, they? <laughs> we have to. That's my property taxes. All these buses out there running. All these things. Um, and it's a time where it's just uncertain. And I, I don't re recall, I read an article in, in uh, USA Today this week. Um, some guy writes painful lessons from the 70s as things get ugly again. And he talked about things. He was young enough in the 70s to have it hit him. And he's, uh, you know, bragging about himself, patting himself on the back, whatever he's doing. But he's, he's saying things that he learned from then that have helped him prepare. And he's saying, we're all going to have to learn some lessons and rethink. But shrinkflation, this is where we're going, shrinkflation. I understand that one because I was pretty happy to order a couple cases of, of uh, bathroom tissue for our bathrooms uh, not long ago. And I'm like, wow, this isn't going to hit the church budget so bad because the prices stayed the same. How could those prices stay the same? <laughs> and then it's like, well, I could carry that case down here like a waiter carrying a food on a tray. Uh, the price was the same, <laughs> but shrinkflation. Um, Gatorade now. Your 32-ounce bottle of Gatorade uh, is now 28 ounces. It's the same size, you know, same marketing. But they said, well, we were going to do that anyway because we wanted to craft our bottle so you could grip it easier. So that's not, that's not shrinkflation. But it's the same price or a little more for what used to be that much. Um, there was a um, coffee, uh, one of the coffee people, Folgers or Maxwell House or one of them, and they've shrunk from X amount of ounces down to this amount of ounces. 
but on the label it still says makes approximately, you know, 50 cups or however they do that. They didn't change how many cups it makes. Well, it's like, well, yeah, you could, if your coffee cup is the size of a thimble, it can make 500 cups. Um, but they said they're using lighter beans. Somehow they're processing, and so it's lighter. So that's what it is. It's not less for what you're paying for. Um, it's real. And I started thinking about shrinkflation and the whole idea of that. And I said, if I was a, a pastor and I was going to make a, some kind of an illustration that was relevant, how would we talk in spiritual terms about shrinkflation? And I think, I, I think with the text here, I kind of hit on something. Um, Jesus... The cost for your salvation, this, this ties in with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is the cost of discipleship where he said salvation is free, but just because salvation is free does not make it cheap. Remember Mad Magazine, you know, 25 cents, cheap. Um, just get the difference between free and cheap. The cost of your salvation is Jesus Christ on the cross, uh, giving his life, experiencing the equivalency of, of an eternity in hell for each of the people he came to save. But we try, uh, we're going to get into some passages about you are not your own, but you're bought with a price. We, we try and give Jesus less than what he bought. Okay, stay with me on this and let's, let's look at these passages. Um, 1 Corinthians 3.23, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 6.18-20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. Oh, it's my body. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with my body. It's not your body. It's never been your body. Never. It's never. It's not your body to do what you want. You have an obligation to the creator God who made you. And if you're a Christian, uh, you've just taken, your, your body's just been taken, and instead of serving uh, the world and the devil and, and the whims and, and your passions and your sin natures, now you serve God. But you're not brought from that to some neutral ground where now I get to just do whatever I want. It's mine, my body. No. It's easy for us to approach the world as a buyer. Easy for us as a church, me as a pastor. We talk about evangelism. And i got to try to sell people on the idea of Jesus. Jesus is a product. Buy Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Your life is better. Uh, uh, old R.C. used to say this, don't worry so much about whether or not you accept Jesus. <laughs> you better be concerned about whether or not Jesus accepts you. Uh, that's what you worry about. And, and that's, a, that's a good way uh, to put it. Uh, there was a preacher that put it this way. Christianity is this. All that you are for all that he is. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 23. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. Continuing on with Romans chapter 6. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You did what you wanted. You were just a slave of this world. And man, whatever they wanted to sell you, whatever it was, uh, you, could, you could indulge, you could do your thing. That's all you knew to do because you were just dead in your, in your trespasses and you were slaves to sin. Now you've been bought by Jesus Christ, by his blood, and you're slaves of righteousness, Scripture says. Romans 6. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't say I'm putting myself in a neutral position and I'm, I'm the captain of my fate. You're, you're a slave of sin and death or you're a slave of God. Romans 6. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So this morning, we see Paul uh, writing and continuing this letter that he wrote to the Philippians. We see how Scripture builds on the verses we considered last week about working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Just as it's possible, the Bible says it's possible to rob God by not giving your tithes and offerings. That's in Malachi 3, 8 through 10. It's also possible to think you're going to rob God as we try to live our lives for ourselves and not for the God who purchased us with Jesus' blood. Giving to God involves three, say, three areas. Uh, Time, talents, treasure was a good way to, to, to say it. That we give to God uh, those things. We're stewards of the body he gave us. We're stewards of the situation he gave us. Uh, that that uh, book, when you pull out your phone and you look and you go, my contacts, those are contacts that God has given you to glorify God in some way with those contacts. Uh, those things, your situation, our homes, our, our stuff is not our stuff, never was. And we give back to God. And even our lives and our actions and the choices we, we choose to make as Christians, uh, uh, the difference is we've been uh, enabled. We've been given a desire to live for him. We've been given opportunity. Now, God uses non-believers as well as believers, and God speaks to the heart of, of, of non non-Christians and uses them to accomplish his good purpose. But boy, uh, when, he, when he lets us do his will and his work, uh, we get to see it happen and we get to do it. And boy, that's a purpose and a meaning in life that we didn't even realize before. Text this morning, he's talking about living for Christ and it's a continuation. The whole theme is Christian Perseverance. And so three points this morning from these verses, uh, from Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Uh, the three points will be, as we talk about this Christian perseverance, one, 
Christian perseverance is noticed by those who are not Christians yet. Two, Christian perseverance is encouraging to those whom God has used to pour into us in our lives. And three, uh, and this is uh, this this could be come back come afterwards and tell me the better way that I, that this could have been worded, and I will thank you. Uh, but uh, the the idea and the gist is Christians who persevere are interconnected with those uh, uh, in the larger Christian body. So we'll explain more about that when we get there. But those are the three points. First, Christian perseverance is noticed by those who are not yet Christians. Maybe by those even who are, will never become Christians. But it's noticed by the, by the non-Christian world. Verses 14 through 16a. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. Okay, Bible is not. Some of us grew up, and, and we look back, and I think I think I, I could say, well, I grew up in this tradition. Well, I, and I'm gonna, you know, I can I can really get negative. It was all just don't do this, 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 and you'll be a good Christian. I know there was more than that. I know there was, but sometimes when I'm in that mindset, I think it's just a don't, don't, don't. Uh, Christian life is a series of don'ts and and, and do's. It is. Uh, Paul, in, in this passage, there's some things not to do, some things to do. He says, everything you do, don't do it with grumbling and, and disputing, with murmuring, with, with, a, with a bitterness, with a, a fight, a complaint against God. Now, Paul was an expert in the law of God. The scriptures they had at that day, Paul was writing some of them, under the inspiration of God, and God has assembled those as some of his letters in. But the scriptures they had in that day that were the scriptures that Jesus recognized as scriptures that we do, that was their Old Testament canon. And Jesus constantly referred back to the law and the prophets, or they'll say, David said this, or Moses said this, or whatever. And that, when they do that, they are giving, that, that's New Testament proving Old Testament as the inspired word of God. And Paul was an expert at that. Paul, we know in scripture, was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. I thought about this, that this week. I thought, with all of his knowledge and his training, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, just skilled in the law, wouldn't have he have been a better choice to be an apostle to the Jews, to go back to them and say, here in our own scriptures, here's Jesus here, here's Jesus here, here's Jesus here. But then the more you think of it, no, these Gentiles that God was bringing in and saving that had no, no understanding of, of, of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, he was perfect because he could explain it to them in the right way. He was the right one to be the apostle of the Gentiles, even though he was, as he calls himself, a Jew's Jew. He, he knew that stuff. And if you read his writings and look, and you, you, you take the Jewish a translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. Septa meaning you know, from seven. And then the tradition was it was like 70 rabbis that translated the Old Testament in 70 days or something. That's how they get the name of it. But the Septuagint, uh, you see Paul's New Testament writings, how there are just echoes wherever you cut it. It's like a marble cake. You cut it. And there is, there is Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. 
And here, uh, you, you can get, get a commentary and you can look and you can see what Paul was talking to, in, to the Philippians about murmuring and grumbling and disputing, a direct quotes and a direct lift toward God's Old Testament people in the wilderness, grumbling and complaining against God after God delivered them. And so uh, we can turn to Deuteronomy 31, 26, and 7. Moses is getting ready to die, and he's, he's giving his final address to God's people. And he says this, he says, uh, uh, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant, which all that stuff there was pointing to God's deliverance. Um, uh, Take the book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Uh, This is an echo even of him saying in verses 12 and 13, Obey God, whether I'm there or not there. And you see it. And as you read through, uh, when, when you start to read through the Old Testament, you see this massive deliverance that God gave his people. And there they are in the wilderness. He set them free. And then all of a sudden, here comes the grumbling. You brought us out here to die. There's no water. There's no good food. And then even when he sent manna, then they grumble about the manna being boring and the same old thing and and all of that. Uh, I listened to a song this week that I I enjoy. It's better in its album and in context. It's a a Christian, it's kind of a folky thing from from, uh, Brooklyn. The band is called The Welcome Wagon. And in one of their songs on their album, they have a song called Rice and Beans But No Beans. (laughs) And even the rice is thin. And the rice and beans, but no beans uh, is, is fun. And it just talks about, and it's almost sung joyfully and cheerfully as a Christian can do that in all of our circumstances. He's just saying, don't complain. Christians, you have nothing to complain about. Really? I mean, you, you do by the world standards, but that's the world standards. You've been saved. You've been brought to life. You don't. As a family, we would read the, um, just, my parents would just sit us down as kids and we would just read through the Bible storybook. And I remember one time, my older sister Kathy, she was probably seven or eight, and, and we were on the part with the children of Israel. And here they were complaining again, and Kathy just went, oh, why do they always do that? <laughs> and and uh, again, complain, 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 and she just had had enough. Um, God delivered. God saved. I used to give my little speech whenever we would sing this song about being happy all the day. Well, you know what? (laughs) When I'm not joyful in the Lord because I'm complaining, the remedy for that is for me, even in my own mind and heart, to go back down to the cross and see what Jesus has done, see where I'm going, and that does help. Sinclair Ferguson talked about the um, grumbling and complaining that God's people, the children of Israel, did in the desert. And he said, why was this such unacceptable behavior? Because it was deep ingratitude in the face of the saving grace and continuing activity of God. A grumbling or questioning spirit is an expression of ingratitude 
to God's providence and of lovelessness and pride towards others. It's a denial of grace. It is a working against salvation rather than working out salvation in every aspect of our lives. In the face of the self-humbling of Jesus, which Paul had just talked about in Philippians 2, and the servant spirit which was his, murmuring and argument are ugly monsters. That's kind of strong. And I believe true. And sometimes when we bow our heads and we confess our sins here, uh, maybe maybe you know we're thinking of, of you know what the world would call the biggies or what we think in our life is the biggies. You know, maybe just even question and say, God, um, how's my how's my heart toward contentment toward what you've given me? I mean, the whole world is in trouble. Um, but he says, you guys, you face a, a different way. And you can shine as lights in the world. You can approach, your approach uh, is not to, not to rise up. Uh, he says, so, so that's what not to do, what to do. Be blameless and innocent, he said in, in, in this verse, uh, in this section. How you encounter difficulty is different. How you demonstrate, how you register an opinion. If you happen to be living in a government where we do, where you can, you know, quote unquote, protest. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Go out and, and, and protest if you want to protest. But how do you do it? Be willing. I wrote, don't burn and loot and murder for your cause. That's not a Christian way. Be willing to die for what you know to be true, but do not be willing to kill for what you know to be true. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But you can, you can make your, your, your case known. But even how you do it, you can shine as lights in the world and you can say, I am just going to submit myself to God's sovereignty. I'm going to work. I'm going to, I'm going to be active if God's called me to this area or this area or this area. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to say uh, there's not a right way to go. But you can do that even in a Christian way. The world has a, has a, has a phrase called happy warrior. I like that phrase. Um, is it possible for Christians, though, to grumble and murmur and dispute and do it in the wrong way? Can you really be a Christian and do that? Well, obviously you can because Paul's writing to Christians saying don't do that, so there's a possibility. We can do that, and we're wrong when we do. And someone's really a Christian and they do this in the wrong way and murmur and grumble and complain and shake their fist at God and the world and, and, and turn well, you can still be a Christian, but you're not being a Christian the way that God called you and is equipping you and is leading you to be a Christian. And when the Christian does refrain from complaining against God, when the Christian reacts with a spiritual response that is true, but responds in what uh, Paul referred to as a blameless and innocent way, the world takes notice. We hear from this group called the Voice of the Martyrs, and they're talking about what it means to be persecuted for Christ. Sign up for that little magazine. Read and see what's going along. Hear testimonies. But you know what those Voice of the Martyrs, what they always say, what persecuted Christians around the world say? Pray for us in our response. Pray that we would have a godly response and pray for our persecutors, that God would even 
somehow use our response to draw them and open their eyes to himself. Pray for those who persecute you. Love those who despitefully use you. We don't have to uh, hate back. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives. Peter's writing there, there in this day, a lot of women became believers and their husbands were not believers. He gives in this whole section, there's words for wives, words for husbands. So it's not just wives, wives, wives. But in this case, this application is what he wrote to the wives, which was perfect. And we can apply that to all situations. It's not just within a marriage, maybe, where we have a, 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 a nasty, unsaved husband. But he said, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, here's Jesus in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a, light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, that light, Paul says, don't be grumbling and disputing. Be blameless and pure. Be good because you're shining as lights in a dark world. That's, our call. That's what we get to do as Christians. Good for us. Good for us. Let's do that. Let's, put a, let, let, let's start to think about how we live and how we present ourselves in a world uh, that is lost. You are being observed, and this is part of God's plan. Rather than just saving your soul and then immediately transporting you to heaven, which he could do and still accomplish everything he wants on this earth, he lets you live here uh, for his glory to help do his work. Wow. Gave the illustration one time of, of uh, it, it's like... Uh, when one of my kids was really little, and I'm, we're gathering, <laughs> Paula's like a house on fire, pulling weeds, pulling weeds, pulling, pulling. And my job is to follow along with the wheelbarrow and gather those things up and put them in and, and take them down into that little path in the woods and dump them out and, and all of that. And one of, my, one of my kids were little. I, I hardly remember which one. I think I know which one. But want to help you, Daddy. Okay. Let's push this big wheelbarrow. Are, you, are we strong enough? Can we do this? And that little kid gets in between me and puts their hands on the wheelbarrow, and I have it on the outside, and together we did that. And that little child was so proud to be able to help and do that. That's us. God lets us. God loves us so much. He wants to include us, and he lets us do his, his work, but we get to do it. Chooses to use us in a good way, for something that matters. Second point, Christian perseverance is encouraging to those Christians who have invested in you. Paul says, essentially, this is verses, um, uh, the, last, the last part of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, make me proud. Validate my life. You go, isn't that sin? Isn't Paul sinning here? Obviously not. There's no corrective in here. Uh, well, it's supposed to be about God's glory. Paul's not supposed to. No, Paul is, is invested in people. So what's the answer to this? 
Somebody said the answer is that Paul's mission in his life was so tied up with God's mission that, it, that one was the same as the other. You make Paul proud by glorifying God, and it's not a sin uh, for Paul to have said that. It's not, uh, listen to this, Third John 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Uh, What keeps Paul's statement here from being wrong? If I said it, maybe it would be wrong. Maybe I'd be trying to steal glory from God. Do this for me. Um, When Paul says this, make me proud and joyful in you. Remember the personal relationship that Paul had with them. He loved them more Remember the personal relationship that Paul had with God. And his mission was the same as God's mission. And he wanted them to live for God. His joy was that his spiritual children glorified God. A man once said to me, Well, even if my kids aren't going to be Christians, I at least want them to play nicely in the sandbox and be good citizens. And I nodded my head at the time and agreed. And then the more I thought about that over the years, I thought, what does it matter anyway? And maybe, maybe if they weren't playing good in the sandbox, and maybe if something came along in their life, maybe, maybe if they were like the prodigal son who's fighting for the husk with the swine, maybe that'd be even better. Paul said, listen, I want you, I look at you as my spiritual kids, and we want our kids to be Christians, to live for God, to glorify God. But there's so many verses in in Scripture of of comparing and, and, and Paul's attitude toward these believers as his children in the faith. Uh, there were somebody counted 19 of them. Here's a handful of them. 1 Timothy 1 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 1.4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Philemon 1.10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Paul had a kid in prison? Yeah, a spiritual kid, Onesimus. 1 Corinthians 4.17. For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Hebrews 2.13 And again I say I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. 1 Corinthians 4.14 I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Galatians 4.19 My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul paired himself to a woman in labor and talked about his spiritual children. Uh, there are people just like, you know, I still want my, you know, I'm 60. <laughs> Parents are 80. I still want them to be proud of me. And that's not a bad thing. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord gave you. Uh, there is something that Paul says even to these Philippians you do good, you persevere, and, and there, it's not a sinful thing to want to make the person who spiritually birthed you 
to use the biblical language, to make them happy and proud that, 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 that they've done this, that their labor wasn't in vain. He said that. You do this, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in, in vain and labor in vain. And if you've got a spiritual father, spiritual mother, somebody that's poured into you, that has, has come along spiritually and, 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 and helped you in your, in your walk with God, then honor them. And you live for God. And you make, you make that time that they poured into you uh, something that they can say, I'm so glad. Boy, look, I was talking to my old pastor, Finley, and we were talking about somebody, and I knew a little bit about the situation where this person's church was. And, and I said, oh, yeah, they're in a good church. That, that's a good pastor up there. And, and, and boy, from what I've seen... And he was just so happy as the old pastor who's retired to hear that, 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 that that's going on and that his life was valid. Uh, his gospel ministry was valid. It is if you tell the truth no matter what, but think about the connection that's there with the immediate people that have poured into us spiritually. Third point, Christians who persevere. This is where I, I, I got these... I, I got these points and looked at the text from D.A. Carson. I put, the, I put a great quote in our worship folder. Um, that third point, Christians who persevere are interconnected, um, where he said this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, even if, if this is going to end in me dying, I'm just poured out on top. Here's your faith and I'm just kind of the capper on top of that. If I'm, if I'm going to die, and he uses that analogy of being poured out as a deep drink offering, uh, I rejoice. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, here's Carson. Such Christian perseverance is a form of Christian sacrifice that makes the leader's sacrifice a complimentary capstone to theirs. And I said, say what complimentary capstone? He's, 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 he's in a, he's, what does he mean? I had to read that and think about that for a long time. Uh, goes on to say, Carson does, the argument is subtle, but it is very important. Paul writes, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice in all of you. And then we get some explanation. Thank you, D.A. Carson. In this metaphor, the actions of the Philippians constitute the primary sacrifice. We read this, or I read this, maybe you don't, I read this and I go, oh, Paul's the one, oh, he's sacrificing his life, oh, he's suffering in jail. He's, he's saying, no, the real sacrifice is the ones who aren't getting to die quick. The real sacrifice is you who, who go on living for Christ. Uh, later on, he would say, I die daily. Uh, it's easier to be a martyr for Christ in the traditional literal sense, and, and to be killed for Christ than to live for Christ every day. Uh, you die, you go to heaven. To live for Christ, that's a, that's a tougher deal. Uh, he went on and he said, if Paul has to give up his life, his sacrifice is merely a kind of libation poured out on top of their sacrifice. Such a libation is meaningless unless it's poured out on a more substantial sacrifice. But their Christian living is the sacrifice. Uh, he would say in Romans uh, 12, uh, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
that you present your bodies uh, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. Uh, that's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice. Uh, Paul's martyrdom, should it occur, or the pains, sufferings, and persecutions he faces as an apostle are the complimentary drink offering poured over theirs. Paul says, in effect, if I suffer or even lose my life in a sacrifice poured out on top of your principled self-denial, I'm delighted. What I do not want is to die a martyr's death without any corresponding fruit in your life. As it is, whatever small sacrifice I'm called to make is but a complimentary capstone to the sacrifice that all Christians are called to make. In this I will rejoice, so you rejoice with me. Illustration. Uh, There's a a unit of of soldiers, and they're serving together, and they are serving in the cause of freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, just freedom for people to live their lives and not be oppressed. And they're there in their little circle, and a grenade comes rolling in, and that one who sees it first uh, and has the, the, the instincts dives on that grenade and gives their life for the rest of them. Well, the people he saved continue to fight. He's got the easier job in some ways. The people that he saved, the people that a lot of people died to save uh, uh, so that, that their nation, whatever nation that is that we're talking about, has freedom. They've got more of an obligation uh, because of that, but that person had the easier job.